Welcome to this podcast of the Innovation Keynote at the 10th Annual Social Enterprise Symposium. It was presented by Sita Huriharan, General Manager and Group Head of TCS Digital Software and Solutions Group. It was recorded at the University of Maryland Robert H. Smith School of Business on March 9th, 2018. Thank you, Kim, for the warm introduction. You know, when I told my team that I was going to speak with all of you today, they gave me some advice. They said, Sita, try not to be witty, charming, or act intellectual. Just be yourself. (laughs) You know, with that, I want to say that I'm truly honored to be with all of you today. The current and the future leaders that are working to create a better future for all of us. What a wonderful calling. You know, as you heard, I work for Tata Consultancy Services. My group is responsible for building technologies that help cities create a sustainable future for all of us. I love what we do, but I have to confess to you that it wasn't my life's initial calling. You know, when I was growing up in the southern part of India, my parents and my grandparents told my brother and me that we should be of service to others. We should help people that aren't as fortunate as we are in this life. So as a kid, I thought becoming a doctor would just help me do that. But I have to tell you that that dream of mine came crashing down when I was in my 11th grade. Our teacher took us to the first zoology lab session. She wanted us to work in pairs. And in front of us was a glass jar. And in that jar was a really dead frog (laughs) that was soaking in formaldehyde. You know, our teacher wanted us to open the jar. She wanted us to take the frog out, dissect it, and examine its parts. I asked my partner, Christy, to do the honors. You know, it was the first time I learned the art of delegation. (laughs) You know, as soon as Christy opened the jar, you know, the smell of formaldehyde was so strong that I almost fell unconscious to the floor. And I knew that I needed a plan B. I was contemplating two options, either to become a professor or an engineer. You know, I discussed both the options with my parents. And uh, my parents really got excited about me becoming a professor. My mom said, Sita, that is an excellent idea. You should become a professor. As soon as I heard those words from my mom's mouth, like any good teenager, I decided I wanted to become an engineer. (laughs) You know, looking back, I'm so glad that I couldn't stand the smell of formaldehyde. Engineering and technology has been such a rewarding profession for me. It has taken me places that I never even thought possible as a kid. You know, I share this frog story with you 
because I know that while each of us may have taken a different path to get to where we are today, and I also know that each of us may take a different path going forward, I believe that we at least have one thing in common, an intense desire and passion for making a difference in this world. All of you showing up at the symposium speaks volumes to me about who you are. And I know that you are now ready to build the cities of the future. I also know, looking at you, that each of you can build cities and the future of the cities and its citizens are in better hands. In the short time that we have together today, I'm going to speak with you about something that is even more important than technology, our behavior. High-end technologies will continue to be instrumental for solving some of the most complex challenges in the world. That's a given. But in order for anything to be effective and sustained, we need to figure out how we use our behavior to turn some of our social challenges into social value. Let me paint a few scenarios for you. Think about this. Approximately 10,000 people are moving from rural areas to urban areas every hour of every single day in places like Asia, Africa, and Latin America. Since I started the speech, nearly 1,000 people have become urban residents. Even in a developed economy like US, urbanization has increased by 19% just in the last 17 years. Why do you think this is happening? What is the reason for this rapid urbanization? People aren't moving just because they want to leave their families. Okay, in some minor cases like me, when I was your age, I wanted to get away, as far away from my parents as possible. <laughs> but seriously, in many instances, people are moving because they don't have access to basic needs of life, clean air, clean water, sanitation, and decent job opportunities. If this pace of rapid urbanization continues, in order to sustain it, we'll have to build a city as large as London, one every month for the next 33 years. A few years ago, one of the former mayors of Barcelona, Mr. Aero, defined smart city better than anyone else I can think of. He said, don't talk to me about technologies. I want to build a dancing Barcelona, a city where people are happy, visitors feel welcome, and people feel safe. Of course, in order to satisfy that vision, the city had to use technologies as an example to collect trash early so that the city smelled fresh. The city had to use smart tech parking technology so that people didn't have to drive around the city for 30 minutes in order to find a parking space. The city had to use technology so that the streets were well lit, so that the people felt safe in the night. 
So even today, when people talk about building sustainable cities of the future, the first example that comes to anyone's mind is Barcelona. Now I'm certain you will agree when I say that a dancing Mumbai would be quite different than a dancing Barcelona, right? While I understand that cities in developing economies like Mumbai would have to focus on building out its smart infrastructure in order to boost the economic growth. I also believe that cities like Mumbai should focus on spending its resources in addressing the basic needs of its citizens. Access to clean water, clean air, sanitation, and education. When that happens, even I would join the dance in the streets of Mumbai with my two left feet. <laughs> you know, it is easy for us to think that this happens only in developing economies, in cities like Mumbai, but that's not the case. Let's take the case of Cleveland, Ohio, in the heartland of America. Drive eight miles from Lynnhurst to Huff, eight miles, half the distance from here to Reagan International. Life expectancy drops by 24 years. Take a ride in the train in London from Oxford Circus to Silver Lane. Life expectancy drops by 21 years. Two communities that are so close to each other but so far apart. Why do you think there is so much disparity? You could say it is because of the healthcare disparities between the two communities. But you know, healthcare disparities don't occur without the disparities in transportation, affordable housing, food access, and workforce development. The differences between the cities Barcelona and Mumbai as well as the communities in Ohio and London underscore the fact for us that the cities should spend their resources first to address the basic needs of its citizens before they talk about smarter parking. As we embark on the journey together to build sustainable cities of the future, there are several imperatives that we should consider. I'm going to speak about three imperatives today. Number one, how do we ensure that we encourage innovations at the local level? Number two, how do we relook at the partnerships between public and private sector? Number three, how do we ensure that the regulations keep pace with the technology? So let me talk about the first one, which is how do we encourage innovations at the local level? You know, we spoke about this rapid pace of urbanization, and we also spoke about uh, the challenges that we will continue to face. And one way for us to counter that is to drive innovations at the local level. Local companies understand the local markets better. They understand the local challenges. 
they understand the needs of its citizens. One biggest advantage of driving innovation at the local level is that it helps to jumpstart the economy at the local and regional level. I want to give you an example. Let me take the case of the Netherlands. You must be wondering why does she want to talk about Netherlands? Two reasons. Number one, we are here today at the Van Munching Auditorium, named after Leo Van Munching, a graduate of this business school, 1950, and I believe it is appropriate for me to pay tribute to him. The second reason, Netherlands, despite it being a small country, it was the first one to roll out the country-wide network for Internet of Things in 2016. Since then, several of the local companies have developed IoT applications and proof of concepts. One of the notable ones is still being used by the country to control and monitor its excessive drainage, as well as control its flood infrastructure. If a small country like Netherlands with limited resources can drive innovations at the local level, we should be able to do it here in the heartland of America. The second imperative for building sustainable cities is how do we redefine public-private partnerships? Have you seen this movie in 2008, WALL-E? For those of you who haven't, here is the net-net. The planet Earth is filled with trash. CEO of this large company, by and large, offers to clean up the space while human beings take vacation for five years in his space liner axiom. There is a robot that is sent down. Its name is WALL-E. It works single-handedly and tirelessly to clean up the trash. Fast forward a decade. I'm so glad that the earth isn't filled with trash. But we all know that machines are replacing humans at a rapid pace in various industries, whether it is automotive, manufacturing, retail, healthcare. Automation places an additional responsibility on all of us to ensure that schools, universities, and colleges offer the right courses. It's also our responsibility to ensure that we retrain our workforce and help them to transition into the new roles. In, traditionally, when we have looked at public-private partnerships, it has always been about the relationships between the public sector, private sector, and academic institutions. What I'm asking is for us to also bring the labor unions into the fold. Bringing the labor unions, I believe, will help to bridge the digital gap and ensure equal opportunities for everyone. And the time to relook at that partnership is today. The third imperative that I want to speak to you about that helps to build sustainable cities is how do regulations keep pace with technology? I was recently reading an article on self-driving cars or autonomous vehicles, and I stumbled on this legislation, Locomot Locomotives on Highways Act, 1861, when I was a kid. 
when cars were first invented, they weren't allowed to go faster than a horse and carriage. The speed limit was four miles an hour, two miles faster than the rush hour traffic here on the Beltway. <laughs> People were worried about the safety of the citizens. The legislation also stipulated that each automobile was to have a three-member crew, including a red flag bearer. And this person was responsible for directing the automobiles through the intersections. <laughs> a little bit amusing when we look at that, isn't it? But it has always been that way, unfortunately. Our basic instinct is to take the rules of the past era and apply it to the new technology. We all know that eventually the legislation evolved as, the as people got more and more comfortable with the automobiles and the infrastructure evolved as well. We are finding ourselves in a very similar situation when it comes to self-driving cars. Various states have passed various legislations. In some states, uh, the driver has to have both his or her hands on the steering wheel. Some states require that the driver is seated in the passenger seat when the car is driving itself. Some states even have stricter laws, like in the case of New York, the self-driving cars can only be tested on pre-approved routes, and that too with a police escort, a little bit reminiscent of a red flag bearer. I am certain that as people get more and more comfortable with the technology and there is an established safety record, legislations will evolve to unleash technology's full potential. How long will it take? Hard to say. But you know what? What is not hard to say is when we have such social disparities just eight miles apart. This is not the time for us to wait. We need to act with a sense of urgency to push for legislations that will take into account the betterment of all our citizens. <laughs> Again, it is our behavior that will make the biggest difference. Our behavior in our jobs, in how we influence things for the greater good, how we treat the planet, and our willingness to listen and see and then respond to needs. Let me close with this final thought. As we embark on this journey together to create a difference in this world, it is by far the most difficult job than anything else that we have ta tackled. There will be moments when we ask ourselves, what the heck are we doing? Possibly many moments. It may be easier just to go with the flow. What I have learned is that it is all about self-trust. It is that inner compass that we all have but sometimes question because of self-doubt and fear. You know, I have been quite fortunate. My parents, right from my childhood, told me to believe in myself. Even today, 
When I call them for advice, they tell me, Sita, trust that you will do the right thing and everything else will be all right. And if it doesn't work, you know, I give that same advice to you today. I hope it works, but if it doesn't work, just blame my parents and that's what I do. <laughs> Mahatma Gandhi said this so beautifully once. People always become what they believe themselves to be. When I believe I can, I acquire the ability to do it, even if I didn't have it in the beginning. Each of you here is an inspiration to me today. And I look forward to living in the world you future leaders create. Thank you. <laughs>